How do we shape the leaders of the future? Is there something to the trend of promoting high performers into leadership? Or should we rethink the behaviors that are required of effective, proactive leaders? In this episode, I speak to author, keynote speaker, facilitator, and coach, Alan Hunkins, about the three secrets to effective leadership and the importance of putting people first. High performers have to get out of task mode and get into people mode. You have to realize that I don't care what business you're in and what function you're in, you are leading people. And if you don't put people first, you're going to struggle with these same challenges that the majority of leaders struggle with. A sought-after keynote speaker, facilitator, and coach, Alan Hunkins is a leadership expert who connects the science of high performance with the performing art of leadership. Leaders trust him to unlock their potential and expand their influence, leading to superior results, increased engagement, higher levels of retention, and greater organizational and personal satisfaction. His book, Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Strong Leaders, is a practical guide to becoming the effective, proactive leader you aspire to be. So, ready to learn more about how leaders can connect with empathy, communicate with authenticity, and collaborate with transparency? Let's discuss. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this is Humans Now and Then. Alan Hunkins, thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Rebecca. It's great to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you. You certainly have an amazing breadth of experience in leadership. And so according to your website, 25 countries, 2,000 groups. And so what a great perspective you must have gained through all of those different environments uh, over those 25 years. Yeah, it's amazing. Again, when you get a sample size that large, what you start to really see clearly are the patterns that show up. And it turns out that, you know, great leaders definitely have certain qualities and patterns of behavior in common. And so do lousy leaders. So happy to unpack all that stuff today with you. Oh, that's going to be great. I'm looking forward to it. So let's start with one of the interesting topics I think that has come up over time now and again on the podcast, but also something that organizations sometimes struggle with, or even just employees when they see who gets promoted around them. And that's around high achievers. So as we are aware, a lot of times folks that have achieved quite a bit in their day-to-day work often are promoted into leadership. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they're always prepared for those leadership positions or are well-tailored for a leadership position. So let's talk a little bit about why some of those high achievers may not always be a great fit as a great leader. Oh, I love what we're starting with. This is such a a juicy question. And just kind of as we get into this, you know, I recently saw one of those stats that makes your jaw drop, which is that 58% of people who end up in management and leadership roles have gotten zero, zero formal training in doing those roles whatsoever. Wow. Yeah. So just to back up, yeah, high achievers. I mean, this is so super common, right? Most people who end up in leadership roles, they get there because they were seen as these high achievers who get stuff done. It's like, you're good at this. Let's put you in this leadership role. But the here's the big thing. Right? That there's a huge difference between being a high performer and facilitating high performance in others, right? right? This is the major gap. It's a totally different skill sets. And all those high performers, when they get to be leaders, I mean, they mean well, right? They want to do a good job. But the problem is the mindset. So they mean well. And the thing is, because they are so used to being these high performers in this drive to get stuff done, they tend to value efficiency over effectiveness because it's all about getting stuff done. And getting stuff done is this industrial age mechanistic model. And so you look at the stats, right? So we've got 85% of employees are not engaged at work. Um, 51% of people don't trust their employers. We think about, gosh, we've got this real crisis of good leadership. Where does that come from? And so this efficiency mindset that so many high achievers had, it dates back to the efficiency mindset of the founder of management in Frederick Winslow Taylor and the Industrial Revolution. So I'll tell you a story to bring this to life. This guy, I know Matt who really epitomizes this idea of a high performer who struggles as a leader. So Matt is now a high performing leader, but he wasn't when he started. He is a district manager. He's the number one ranked district manager out of a hundred for a national franchise. And when he started, he told me, he said, I thought my job was to be the fixer. I was really, I was a great restaurant manager and they promoted me as district manager. 
So the first thing I would do every day is we get out a printout called the hot list. It's all our key performance metrics. So I'd look for what was in red and not measuring up. Then I'd hustle around from store to store. He had 10 different stores. He'd hustle around and tell the managers, his old job, this is what you need to do. Do this, do this, right? He did this constantly and he struggled at this for years. And it wasn't until he realized that people don't want to work for a fixer. So he was in that high performer, high achiever mindset. He said, I think the worst day was the day I realized there were people on the teams who were quitting. I didn't even know what their names were. So then I changed my approach. He said, then suddenly I realized I had to find ways to connect with the restaurant managers, the people in the stores. I had to start asking them, what do they think we should do? He said, the key to actually making the numbers was to stop focusing on the numbers and to start focusing on the people because it's the people that make the numbers. So if I had to sum up Matt's story as how it relates to high performers, high performers have to get out of task mode and get into people mode. You have to realize that I don't care what business you're in and what function you're in, you are leading people. And if you don't put people first, you're going to struggle with these same challenges that the majority of leaders struggle with. Oh, yeah. And I love that you brought up that concept of the fixer. And we've seen that in lots of different organizations. And sometimes that can get to the point of desperation, especially if you're trying to work towards achieving very aggressive goals or trying to achieve specific metrics. You lose focus on what might be important or what motivates people to actually meet that goal. And maybe more importantly, making sure that all of those people feel like the work that they're doing based on their strengths and their skills come together and that they all have a part in achieving that common goal, which is really where you get some of the magic behind high-functioning teams. Oh, completely. And the thing for us to remember, you know, yeah, obviously we have metrics and results we want to deliver, and we all get that. No one's arguing with that. However, we have to realize that that efficiency mindset was designed for a workforce that was doing manual repetitive labor on an assembly line. In today's knowledge worker age, people can't perform and do their best work until you create an environment that supports that, which is why all of these pieces in the subtitle of my book is the three secrets of building strong leaders. These are the main themes, connection, communication, and collaboration. They're the essential human aspects to working. And so until we tap into that potential, you have knowledge workers. And if you treat them like industrial age workers, they're not going to do well. They just can't, they can't do well because they need to be creative problem solvers and thinkers. So that's a key piece. We got to remember that we're real, we're dealing with these knowledge workers and yesterday's way of working is not going to cut it today. Oh, absolutely. It's, I think it's the quickest way to disengage your workforce by trying to push them to achieve metrics without understanding the context in which they're working and allowing them to build that connection, not even just with the leaders that are trying to drive them forward so that they can feel inspired to follow instead of forced to follow. And then also feeling that they're making a difference. Their work has purpose and meaning, which is tremendously important, especially to your point to knowledge workers. So one of the things that you talk about as well, which I think is really interesting, is this concept around the facilitative leadership mindset. So can you explain a little bit more about what that is and then the benefit of applying facilitative leadership within an organization? Sure. So if we think about it for a minute, going back to this idea of these high achievers tending to push, 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 right, and trying to getting people to work harder. The fact is people are working hard already, you know, and as a high achiever, if you want to facilitate high performance in others, you can't just work harder. That's not going to do it. And I think it's so fascinating. The word facilitate comes from the French word facile, which means easy. So how do we make things easier for people? In other words, how do we make achieving performance goals easier for people. And that is actually the role of the leader. So if you want to make it easier for people to succeed, and again, if our people succeed, then we succeed, then you need what I call the facilitative mindset. And the facilitative mindset is a set of beliefs and behaviors that allow people to do precisely that, to achieve performance goals easier. And so what that means is we have to understand that our role is to be a facilitative leader, is to draw out. So this starts with a belief that people have huge reservoir of potential and they can contribute 
great value if we create the optimal environment to do so. And so for me, there's three key skill sets that go underneath that mindset. And that is, uh, there's a whole skill set around connection. There's a whole skill set around communication, and there's a whole skill set around collaboration. And I'm happy to dig into each of those because under each of those skill sets of connection, communication, collaboration, there are practical tools that you can use to get there. Now I can tell you all the tools, but if you just take the tools and try to prescribe them without having this mindset of, no, actually I have to help unlock people's potential by creating environment until you get to that framework, all the skills in the world aren't going to help you. Mm. Are you trying to tell me, Alain, that transformation is difficult? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Yeah. yeah. The fact is, yeah, because, and that's the hardest part is the hardest part is because, you know, people say, gosh, leadership is terrible. Why is it so bad? You know, look, I mean, for example, one of the studies I cite in my book is 23% of people say their leaders overall are, ter are terrible. Mm. It's like, but when they say that, they say that in an anonymous survey where there's no real world consequences to being truthful. How many leaders do you know that walk around and actively solicit, hey, I would like to get better. I'd like to make this a better place for you to work. What can I be doing different as a leader? And getting that kind of feedback on a regular basis. That's the trick, right? Because most leaders are in positions of power whereby there is no downside in their mind. They'll just do what they do. And if you don't like it, that's too bad. <laughs> right. right. So, so this is the issue. I mean, this is why just transformation is hard because you have to have the courage and the humility to open yourself up to saying, you know, I could be a better leader, you know, and it's funny because in my mind and in my own experience and with leaders I've worked with, the people who are exceptional, they aren't going around tooting their own exceptionalism. Right. Hmm. So, yes, transformation is a challenge. Yeah, but so, such good points that you make there because you're right. People struggle with getting behind a leader that talks about their accomplishments and not the accomplishments or the contributions of their team members. And I've seen this over and over. And what you'll receive is not even just disengaged employees that will only do maybe the bare minimum just to get by. But they're not going to respect you to the level that they could. They're not going to trust you to the level that they could. And so it's really important to think about the contributions of your team and how you all come together to achieve this common goal. And that's that's where the magic happens. That doesn't even just feel good for employees. I've seen leaders that have made this type of transformation. Like you mentioned, it's difficult. It's not easy. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of dedication and perseverance. But once you get there and you realize the shift of the relationships you're having with your employees, and how much more productive that they are and how much happier that they are, how much more engaged that they are. There is a tremendous benefit, not only to those people, to the leader in experiencing something that is much better or much bigger towards achieving those uh, common goals. Oh, completely, completely. As you say that, you know, as you're talking about this idea of what leaders, how they think about things and do they tout the accomplishments of their team or of themselves? Um, Robert Reich, who used to be the secretary of labor under Bill Clinton, you, he coined this phrase called the pronoun test. Maybe you've heard of it. Is that basically the idea is when you talk to leaders, do they use the word I or do they use the word we? in terms of describing things, you know, because a lot of egocentric leaders like I did this, I did this, I did this. Well, that's great. But are you sure you did this? Or maybe we did this or my team did this. So just noticing what's your choice of pronouns. Language says a lot about who we are because it's a window into how we think and what we truly believe. Oh, that's so true. But, you know, you talked a lot in the conversation, too, around these, you know, three secrets to building strong leaders. And you mentioned that you might be able to expand a little bit on some specific tools and approaches that people can use to apply these three secrets to their leadership style. So let's dig in a little bit further on that. Certainly, certainly. So let's, let's start with connection, um, because that's the first one. And that to me, this is actually the foundation, because at its core, to me, leadership is not about power, control, or a job title at its core. If you think about what is leadership, leadership is a relationship between two people, right? A leader and someone who chooses to follow. And I think today, especially with our knowledge work world, following, you know, giving your full engagement is completely a choice. So the question is, how do we as leaders create stronger connections between the people that we want to lead and ourselves? Well, there's two main components in my mind. Um, and the first one is empathy. Um, and the reason that empathy is so important is because you're working with human beings. 
And human beings are wired to experience the world through the human experience, which is very much a subjective sense of how am I feeling in this moment, right? If we feel good, we actually perform better. In fact, the research and the science would say that when people are performing at their best, they are feeling a certain subset of emotional qualities. And I mean, don't take my word for it. Just think for yourself. When you're doing your best work, my sense is you probably would say, if I said, how are you feeling when you're doing your best work? You would say things like, I'm in flow or in the zone or I'm happy or I'm excited or focused or enthusiastic. It's pretty obvious. But what's less obvious is that anytime someone is not feeling that set of feelings, they are suboptimal as a performer. And if you're a leader, you're suboptimal as a leader. So what we want to do is get people feeling their best so they can do their best work. And so how do we do that? Well, having empathy is a key piece to this. And my definition of empathy is showing people that you understand them and that you care how they feel. Now, as you hear that, you think, okay, got it. Good. That makes sense. Super simple. I do that already. And most people do do that to, to a certain extent. But what the research has found is that while all human beings can demonstrate empathy, we don't demonstrate empathy with all other people. Basically, the people that we love, so family members and really close friends, make the cut. But as we get further and further outside of this empathy circle, we feel less and less empathy for people. And if that wasn't enough, when we put people into pressure-filled, time-bound, deadline situations like work, a lot of this stuff goes out the window. So Business Solver did a study a couple of years ago where they interviewed a bunch of CEOs and organizations and their employees. And so no surprise, 92% of the CEOs said, yes, our organizations are empathetic. Empathy is important here. Well, they asked the employees and only 50% of the employees said the CEOs were empathetic. So there's this knowing doing gap that, okay, we get it. Showing people you understand them and care how they feel is important, but are you really doing it? So from my work, what I've found is there are two huge barriers to leading with empathy. And the first one is impatience. The fact is to show people that you understand them and care how they feel, it's not something you can just check off of your to-do list, right? You can't just go, oh, empathy, got it, good. Let's move on. We got stuff to do. It's not a task. It actually takes time, which means showing some patience. And as you know, in our world today, patience is in short supply. We're all busy people who have results to deliver. And I'm sure you right. know, Rebecca, in a lot of organizations, driving for results has been codified as a core leadership competency. Oh, yes. Right? Like, we have drive for results, bias for action, you know, choose your, choose your words. I mean, that's what we say. And that's fine, right? We have results to deliver. However, driving for results should not come at the expense of driving over the people who are working with you to try to deliver those results. So a big part of this is the paradox. So the leadership wisdom is there's a time and a place to go fast and there's a time and a place to go slow. And when it comes to building relationships and building trust and having people feel like you care about them, you need to slow down at times. And that is a skill that a lot of high performers don't have. So that's one of the big barriers to empathy. Another big barrier is fear. Frankly, a lot of people are uncomfortable with the idea of emotions in the workplace. I mean, you're seeing this especially in 2020 with this pandemic and now having to work from home because this is a weird time and this is actually a collective global trauma. I know that because I looked up the word trauma in the dictionary and it's defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. And I think this coronavirus pandemic qualifies. Um, so that being said, if you are uncomfortable around emotion and talking about it, what do you do when people aren't feeling okay? Like, how do you, for example, with coronavirus, it's totally a normal response to say, it's okay to not feel okay. This is crazy. This is weird. This is hard. I don't know how this is going to work. And then holding some space for someone else to be able to do that. A lot of leaders, and especially, and I'll put myself in the category because I'm Gen Xer. I'm almost 52 now. So Gen Xers and certainly boomers kind of grew up in the age of check your feelings at the door. We don't do feelings at work. That's right. Gen y, right? Yeah. Gen y, Gen Z is like, what are you guys, nuts? I'm not going to separate who I am. Because the weird thing about this idea that we used to have way back, check your feelings at the door. If you stop and really think about that for a moment, 
you don't actually check your feelings at the door. What you do is you suppress your feelings at the door. And that was the rule of how things were done. The only problem is when people are suppressing their feelings and pretending to be somebody they're not, they can't do their best work. So Deloitte did this amazing survey a few years ago, and they found that 61% of the American workforce actually feels the need to cover their identity in some way because they don't feel safe being themselves fully. And as anyone can experience, when you feel like you've got to put on a mask, when you've got to cover your identity in some way, it forces you to be disconnected because you can't actually relax and be yourself, which creates a low trust, low empathy, and low performance culture. So those are a couple of things that get in the way of being more empathetic. I don't want to just leave you in a puddle of, oh, this is hard. So let me offer you a, a simple tool. In my book, I go into six different tools on how to strengthen empathy. And one of the most important is what I call listening with purpose, which is a very different way of listening than the way many leaders listen. A lot of leaders listen to interrupt, listen to fix, listen to tell you what the right answer is, fake listen until you're done, and then tell you what to do. So listening with purpose is about really being open, parking your own agenda, listening to be curious and to be open to the way other people are. And I'll just tell you a quick story around this one. So when I started as a business consultant, I was really excited, but I had very little experience working with senior leaders and I was really scared and I didn't know what to do. But I had this great mentor named Sue and she said, don't worry about being a know-it-all. You don't need to be a know-it-all. Focus instead on being a learn-it-all. And so what Sue did is she created this list of questions. It was a template, actually, a question template that I could use these questions in just about any client situation. And it had broad, open-ended questions like, what's the biggest challenge your team is facing? And it had closed-ended questions like, so if we could wave a magic wand and the whole team was walking out of our meeting with one clear message, what would you want the message to be? And I had this whole bunch of questions. And I would start to use the questions. And most importantly, I would listen with purpose after, after I asked the question. And not only would I get great content on the surface level information for my clients, but I started building these real relationships because surprise, surprise, one of the most powerful ways to connect with people is for us to feel really valued and listened to. In fact, I remember I was talking with a client named Josephine and I was finishing up one of these calls and I asked her one of the questions off the template. I said, so Josephine, now that we're finishing up, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I ought to have asked you? And she said to me, well, that's a really good question. And of course I'm thinking, of course it is. Sue gave it to me. It's on my template. And, uh, and I said, she said, no, 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 this has been great. But I just want to say, I feel like this weight has been lifted as though this was a good therapy session or something. Now, here's the thing. As leaders, we don't need to be licensed psychologists. We don't need to be therapists. But what we do need to be are empathetic humans who take the time to listen to other people, make them feel valued, make them feel understood, because then they feel like their input matters, that they feel like they're a part of our team. So if you want to be a more effective and stronger connector, try listening with purpose. Yeah, no, I think that was really uh, an important point around empathy. It's something that a lot of folks struggle with. And if we go back to the definition of a good leader in different organizations, you're right. A lot of them have those criteria they expect you to meet. Some of them are objective. Some of them are subjective. That aside, empathy is also one of those things that's hard to measure. Like how empathetic was I today? To your point, like I can't really check it off your task list for today. Yeah. You can't say like, hey, you were 96% jerk today. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you won't say that. Exactly. Here's your improvement plan. But yeah. the reality is, is that if you apply empathy consistently, you build trust with your people. Over time, they're going to be comfortable. You're going to see indicators that it's working, such as your people open up with you. They're vulnerable about things like their mistakes or things they're uncertain about. They will come to you to ask to problem solve. One of the things that I personally think we need to get rid of in kind of this leadership vernacular is uh, don't come to me with problems, only come to me with solutions. Because if you leave somebody with a problem and you're not willing to help them find the solution together, I mean, that's the real answer, you know, rather than asking them to just do it themselves. Working together, being collaborative, understanding people's drives, understanding what gets people engaged, understanding their purpose, understanding their strengths, and being empathetic enough to listen to your point, 
to what they have to say with purpose, you know, boy, you're going to start to see those indicators that that's working, even though it's hard to measure, you'll certainly feel the difference. Yeah. I mean, I got to say, you know, in the year 2020, the idea that we have leaders that are still going, well, you know, you can't measure it. So it doesn't exist. I mean, the fact is there's been so much social science research that shows that, for example, high trust organizations outperform low trust organizations by uh, it's 286%. So there was a huge study on this one. I mean, there was studies about the fact that people feeling cared for are like two 2.8 times more likely to stay with an employer. I mean, there's so many, I mean, not to mention it's common sense, right? So there's all this research that shows that it's the right thing to do. And yet, again, if you just want to focus on the metrics like sales, profit, quality, et cetera, only and recognize too, those numbers are only lagging indicators of the performance of people. You know, sales aren't just something that magically shows up on a spreadsheet, it's as a result of some behaviors done by your sales team and by everything. So we have to realize that's where these numbers come from. You know, I got to hear this podcast with, I don't know if you know, Hubert Jolie, who was the CEO of Best Buy. And it's funny because he said something that I've been doing with teams, but, you know, hearing it from him, it kind of validates what I do. When you think about your typical, let's say it's a monthly check-in meeting at any business, what's the first thing that we talk about? The numbers, right? Yeah, numbers. Yeah, it's the numbers. Like, let's let's take a look. Like, what are our numbers? And then, if there's time, we might talk about some of the key projects. And if there's any time left over, we'll talk about the people and what's going on. Well, what Hubert Jolie did at Best Buy is he completely flipped that model on its head. Because again, what we do first says a lot about what we say is important. Mm. So what they did at Best Buy, and I suggest this to leaders too, is why don't you talk about your people first? How are our people doing? You know, you're going to make time to get to the numbers and the business and stuff. But it's amazing how when you start to focus on the people first, it changes the entire equation. Oh, my gosh, that's so true. We think about these meetings in terms of status updates and task completion. And I've also experienced some of the nervousness other folks have when they've got so much on their plate and making sure that they're doing enough or they're not dropping a ball. If you start with people, then it also probably takes some of that pressure off in that meeting and really think about the experience that folks are having and allows them to open up more freely about what they're experiencing with your project or progress on your goals. Well, yeah. I mean, if we think about yeah. those status updates and we start those metrics, yeah. I, mean, it's, I mean, we could be back in the 1920s in a factory setting doing that. I mean, that's just, it's just that industrial age mindset. Yep. And why do we do it that way? Because we've always done it that way. And we right. don't stop to think, you know what? There's no law that says you have to start your monthly meeting with a review of all the top metrics like sales and et cetera. There's no law that says that. But we think, oh, this is business. That's the way things are done around here. Well, maybe you want to question that and, and see that there are different ways to do things. Oh, yeah. That's one of my least favorite phrases in business is we've always done it this way. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah. of course. So let's go on to the next dimension. Sure. Yeah. So we talked about connection. And so, yeah, some of the big pieces we've talked about empathy Another big piece under connection would also be credibility and how you build your credibility. But let's move on to communication because I know that's a long, limited time. So communication, like I know that you know, and that everyone listening knows that communication is one of the biggest challenges to leading well. And if it was easy, we'd all have done it already. So it's interesting because one of the biggest challenges to communication is there is oftentimes a lack of alignment between what people say and what they mean and what we hear. You know, I like to use this analogy, and if you've ever been to any kind of carnival that has those midway games, you're familiar with those bottle ring tosses, right? You try to throw a ring around a bottle, and if you ever try to do it, you know, almost impossible, right? You've tried, tried. and then they bounce off. (laughs) Well, if you imagine that ring toss, to get effective understanding, it's not just one ring, it's three rings. And the three rings are, the first ring is, what do you actually mean, right? So you have a meaning that you're trying to convey. That's one ring. Then what is it you say? So that's the vehicle in which you're trying to convey the meaning. That's the second ring. And the third ring is, what do I hear? Because it's got to get filtered through my own lens. So what do you mean? What do you say? And what do I hear? And the goal of alignment is to create shared understanding. And this, I think, if leaders walk away with nothing else around communication is realizing the goal of communication is never communication. The goal of communication is to create common shared understanding. And the reason that is so important is because shared understanding is the platform on which all future actions are taken from. So if we have accurate, strong understanding, then we can make good decisions, which will lead to good outcomes. 
if we have lousy understanding, our platform is all rickety, then we're going to make some poor decisions and we're going to end up with some poor results. And so while we get that conceptually, the human experience, the way we live and who we are, is that we're not wired to create understanding. Our default settings with other people are misunderstanding. And it's really simple. Why? It's because other people are not you. Right? And so that's the challenge. It's like it's, it was clear in my head, you know, and it's interesting. And so if you think about some of the biggest challenges to understanding is how do you get over some of the communication traps? One of the biggest of them, you know, we have these cognitive biases, which makes us think that we have understanding when we don't. In fact, I'll tell you a story. It's not a work story, but anyone listening to this, you'll be able to relate to this. It's an example of a communication pitfall that we can all fall into. And this happened to me. And look, and I teach this stuff. So you'd think if anyone would know better, it would be me. But this totally happened to me recently. So I live in Massachusetts. And uh, my wife and I, my wife's Mary. And we have these friends we've known for 25 years named Pam and Charlie who live in D.C. And they came to visit us. They drove up. And now our house has a very narrow, it's a one-car wide driveway that widens out at the end so you can park two cars side to side. So when Pam and Charlie came to visit, Pam parked her car right behind our two cars at the end of the driveway, which effectively blocked us in. We couldn't get out, which is not a big deal. And it wasn't a big deal until I had to leave to go to the airport to go somewhere. So this was before coronavirus. This happened last year. So Pam's there. And I said, Pam, could you please move your car? Because I need to go to the airport. And she said, where do you want me to park? I said, please park your car out in front of the house. And she said, you're sure? I said, yeah, I'm sure. She said, you want me to park in front of the house? I said, if you don't mind. I mean, we kind of went back and forth a couple of times. I thought it was a little strange, but then I didn't think anything else of it. So she goes ahead and moves her car and I get my suitcase. I put it in the, in the trunk of the car and I get in the car and I, I start to slowly back out and I'm looking in the rear view mirrors, just checking things and slowly backing out. And then all of a sudden this, like this thing ca- catches my eye out of the, the rear view mirror. I'm like, wait, what, what, what is that? And then I realized, oh my gosh, it's Pam's car. And Pam has parked her car in front of the house, as in directly in front of the house, as in on the flower beds right in front of the house that are now (laughs) completely being crushed because she's parked literally up against abutting the house. Now, in my mind, when I said park your car in front of the house, I thought I could not be any more obvious because what else could I mean when I say park your car in front of the house? What I mean is park your car on the curb, on the street in front of the house. But she had taken my words literally and parked it in front of the house, right? So at that moment, again, knowing what I know, I was like, oh, crap, that was the what the psychologists call the projection bias, which is which you project, you unconsciously assume other people see things and understand things the same way you do. Mm. So I share that story because we've all experienced something like that. And if you think in the work setting, you see the projection bias alive and well and living all the time. Anytime you've ever caught yourself saying something like, well, I sent the email. They should know what to do. Like I sent it. Well, just because you sent an email doesn't mean people understand it and are going to act on it. Or when people say things like, well, doesn't senior management realize what a stupid process this is? No, no, they're not because they're not you. They're not the end user. They're not the customer. They're just doing what they can. And so we get into... All of this stuff. So for example, anytime you hear someone say something like, well, don't they realize or why don't they or can't they see? The answer is no. (laughs) And we have to realize that that's the projection bias. And so we have to counteract that by being vigilant that we are constantly checking in and not, not that we're treating people like children, but we have to go, hey, just to make sure we're clear, just to make sure we're on the same page. Because again, we want to go back and make sure we are standing on that solid platform of shared understanding. Mm. And so there's a bunch of different tools you can use to create that kind of shared understanding. And one of them, and I write about more of these in the book, but one of them is called asking for a receipt. I mean, if you think about what is a receipt, a receipt is a proof of a completed transaction. So in life, you you want something. If, and if it's important, you definitely get a receipt. So if it's low stakes, you might not get a receipt. Like you go buy a candy bar. I don't need a receipt but you would never dream of buying a house without getting a receipt. You'd definitely get a receipt. So in communication, a receipt is a way to make sure that what you've sent or your communication that you sent out, the information 
not that it's just only been received, but that it's been understood. And there's a great, great story that brings us to life that comes out of the fast food industry. So they started the drive-throughs in fast food restaurants back in the 1980s. And at the time they started, the drive-through process was a nightmare. It was super common. You'd drive up to the intercom, place your order, then you'd drive up to the window to pick up your food, and the order would be filled with mistakes. And this went on for years. And then finally, the drive-through mistake rates just started to plummet across the industry. And you might wonder, well, what was the big change? What did they do? A super simple fix. The employees started repeating the order back to the customer before they'd make the order. <laughs> so simple. They were confirming understanding. And so if we think about that idea is how many of us in, in the workplace, you know, we have these meetings, we talk about all these things, but then the meeting's over and we go off but we don't take that extra five or 10 minutes or whatever it is to go, hey, before we go, let's just check in. And so, Rebecca, what is it you're doing? Yeah, and check it right there. So let's, let's get confirm this receipt to get it back. And if you think about it, again, going back to fast food, if Taco Bell will invest in this for a 99-cent taco, think about your business. Don't you think you deserve the same level of clarity? So that's some things around communication that both get in the way and things that people can do to become more effective communicators. Yeah. And I've definitely heard examples of some of those things you brought up. Like, I know that, you know, I said this communication, we sent this email to them, they should know this or that. And I posed the question back, well, how much do you suppose happened? First of all, between the time you sent that email and today, how many times have they actually been able to use that information to let it sink in? Yeah. But to your point, was it really clear to them? Were you writing it from your perspective? And this is one of those things that is kind of pulling all these things starting to come together based on what we were talking about before. Leaders being empathetic, understanding the perspectives of the people around them, having conversations and, and making connections with them so you can understand them better will also help you more effectively communicate with those folks. You are making those mistakes and ultimately leading to things like finger pointing or you know, misunderstandings and things like that that can sometimes cascade from poor communication. Oh, completely. And, and the thing too, Rebecca, is the fact that, you know, when we send these emails and even if they're clear, we don't have the context of how that person is receiving it. We don't know what else is on mm, their plate. Yes. I mean, again, you know, we send the email thinking that people are going to have the time and the space to read it. I mean, think about your own inbox. Do you really give your full attention to every single thing? If I'm honest, the answer is no. Because I am going through and, you know, if I read something and I see like six paragraphs of dense text, my first tendency is to go, ah, bullet points, please, right? I can't cope because we are all drowning in information. What we need is insight, right? And so how do we cut through the noise? And this is why leaders need to be skilled at this. We can't just assume that we can just throw content back and forth and it's going to stick. Right. So very important. Since you're giving so many great tips and so much great information, I know you've got a third dimension to share with us. What are a few more tips you can provide? Oh, sure thing. So we talked about connection. We talked about communication. Yeah, third dimension is collaboration. Now, there's a lot of different aspects to collaboration. And what I found, and we talked about this a little bit earlier in the podcast too, is that we talked about this idea of leaders creating the environment. And the fact is to create the optimal environment where people can be engaged and can be motivated and inspired to do their best work, it means that leaders need to understand how to meet certain fundamental human needs so that people can collaborate and be at their best. And what I found in my work is that there's four key needs, four fundamental needs that need to be addressed to move forward. And those needs, and I'll go through these one at a time. The first one is safety. The fact is when people are unsafe, it basically shuts them down. So for example, right now, coronavirus, there's the physical aspect, right? So this is why people are working from home because it's not safe to go to the office. So there's physical safety as one piece to safety. The other key component is psychological safety. So do people feel psychologically safe to speak up? So for example, on your teams, is there equal amounts of airtime? Can everyone on this team speak up or do you have one or two people who dominate the conversation? And what are you doing as a leader to ensure that you're hearing from everybody and that everyone is being listened to and not interrupted? So these are important things to create psychological safety. So safety is one huge need. Another need that we all have is energy. The fact is we all do better in an environment that energizes us and there are certain things that we do that fuel us and there are things that drain us and there's things as leaders that we do that will fuel other people and there's some things that will drain us. So for example, if you've ever sat through, whether it's in person or on Zoom, 
a two hour meeting and you know, you're about 95, a hundred minutes in and you're going, ah, my brain is now totally distracted. I might need to break. So an example there is that, yeah, so something we all ought to be doing is ensuring that we schedule breaks in every 90 minutes, if not more often, because we know the science would say that biologically people need a break. So let's plan for them. And if we don't, and just try to push on in the name of being efficient, we're a lot less effective because of it. So that's energy. And there's a lot of other things that we can do to create energy as well. But that's just one example. So we've got safety, we've got energy. The third one is ownership. The sense that people do better when they feel that it is theirs as opposed to someone else's idea. So this is where, as a leader, what are you doing to pull out of people more than push into them your ideas. So this is the facilitative mindset. So facilitating, eliciting questions, asking open-ended questions, drawing on people's previous experience. So a lot of things we can do to help create ownership, turning things over to them. So we've got safety, we've got energy and ownership. And the fourth big need is purpose. You know, you talked about purpose earlier in the podcast too, Rebecca. The fact is when people feel like what they're doing is contributing to something greater than themselves, they bring more of themselves and energy and performance to it. So what are things that we're doing to help people understand the purpose of the organization, helping people to clarify how what we do aligns to their own personal values? Are they getting a chance to see the impact and effects of the work that we do on our customers and how we serve them. I'll tell you a quick story on this one. So I got to work with a medical device company a number of years ago. I was working at corporate and they said, hey, do you want to go on a tour of the factory? There's a factory across the street right from the corporate headquarters. So I went over and they do all sorts of really cool device implants for people, cancer patients. And so it's the kind of amazing combination in the factory of high touch and high tech. I mean, this amazing combination. So I got to, to watch a woman. She was working on this stuff and I could see her working. And then she was going off the line to take a break. And I said to her, hey, my name's Alain. I'm working over at corporate. Can you tell me a little bit more about what you're doing here? And she said, you know, I, I expect her to tell me, well, I, you know, I'm taking this wire and I'm pulling it to this because it's a, a catheter. And I, I'm expecting her to explain this to me this way. And she says, hi, my name's April. I help save people's lives. You know, that's what she said. I was like, wow, boom. And I thought, why is that? And what I found with the company is that's no accident because every quarter they bring in some of the patients that they serve to share their stories and how they've been impacted and affected and helped by this company's product. So again, how often do we just take for granted that everyone on our teams know why we do what we do? Or we say, oh, they came in. We told them that during orientation seven years ago. They should know why. It's kind of like, oh, I married you 20 years ago and I said I love you on our wedding day. That was good enough. Right. right? It's the same principle. Like we need to remind people as to why we're doing what we're doing regularly. And so anyway, that's a, some things that we can do around safety, energy, ownership and purpose. And so the more that we can do that, the more collaborative and effective people can be. Yeah. And that's so powerful because like you said, purpose behind the thing that you're doing, you understand how your contribution leads to that greater purpose. One of the mistakes that organizations sometimes make is saying, we have a mission statement. We put it on our slide decks. We had it in our town hall. We might put it on our wall, you know, or, oh, yeah. but if you don't live by it, if it doesn't become an integral part of the way you do work, it's lost on people. People really need to feel it every single day. And the fact that you, you yeah. talked to that worker who really knew exactly the purpose behind the work that she did, that's super powerful. Really powerful. Yeah. In fact, I would go so far to say that if you actually create all this stuff and just put it in a frame, I would say not only is it lost, it becomes hypocritical. And I, I call mm. it corporate propaganda. Oh, you know, it really becomes like you're just basically, you know, mouthing off a bunch of corporate propaganda and everyone's rolling their eyes and they're going, this yes. is just a load of BS. I've seen that so often too, because employees sometimes will react that way. It's like they say this, but they don't really mean that. Yeah. You'd be better off just doing nothing, frankly. If you're if you're going to fake it, don't even bother because people can smell it out in a second. Oh, so much truth to that. Yeah. So yeah, these tools that you've given are, are going to be immensely useful for people to avoid that problem, but also to think about how they connect differently to their people and really get the best out of their people. I mean, wh what a great way for everyone to benefit the company, the, the customers, the people who work for your organization. I mean, it just really brings a better feel, but also more well-being and better outcomes for everyone. So great tips and great tools. 
And also, I want to ask you one more question, which is around an interesting stat that was on your website that does somewhat relate to the topic of my podcast about shaping the future. So one of the stats you had mentioned on the website is 71% of organizations say their leaders are not future ready. So if that's the case, what kind of leadership do we really need as we move forward into the future? Okay. So I think 2020 is a really good bellwether for the kind of leadership that we need in the future, right? Because we think about this year has been change on steroids with all of what's been going on, the disruption. And so as we move forward, I think what we're going to need to see more and more, and as you're seeing it now, right? So you have got people working from home And what we're having to do is really think of all of our, even if they're full-time employees, in some ways, think of them as independent consultants who are working for us, right? Because we have to clearly define the work, the project, the scope, and then we have to trust people to get the work done. Much in those, if you hired a contractor to work for you, who was a consultant, came in, here's the project, here's the scope, you define it, you'd agree on it. So we have to get better at assuming that we have these kind of relationships moving forward. And so the key skills to all this is we're going to have to build relationships that completely depend on high trust. And I know you talked about trust earlier as well. And so how can we as leaders offer that first, right? And when I ask leaders a lot, is trust earned or is trust assumed? And it's amazing how many people kind of go, it's earned, you got to earn trust. Well, it depends. And in fact, most of our society runs on the fact that trust is assumed. You know, we assume that the other drivers on the highway are going to stay in their lane. That's what makes a society function. So all of which to say is moving forward, we're going to need leaders to be better connectors, better communicators, and better collaborators. And we have to understand that as we're seeing this year in 2020, is that the boundaries between work life are are collapsing, if not disappearing, and uh, giving people more of the flexibility and the freedom, uh, getting out of this nine to five industrial age mindset that somehow these eight hours of the day, again, why do we do this? Because we always did it that way. When in fact, people are finding that, you know what, that may not be my most effective time. And the fact is, eight hours, who says eight hours? Like, that's a kind of a random number, you know, especially if you're not working in the industrial era, as opposed to going towards, and there are people who are doing this right now. You know, you look at companies like Gore, you know, they've been doing this for years where they're much more of a results only work environment. So can you hire people and define scope and pay them for results as opposed to paying them for their time? because that is an industrial age mindset. Now, not every organization is going to make all these changes all at once, but how can you start to move in the direction of basically treating people like people and creating environments where they can work as best knowledge work people as they can, you know? And part of that means being really clear communicators and defining expectations very clearly. You know, sometimes when I share this with people, They go, oh, you know what you're saying? Like, we're just going to trust people. What if they don't do stuff? It's like, that's why you have to have clear boundaries up front. You've got to talk about, hey, what are we going to do if things don't work out? You know, what are our milestones? So that you're getting their agreement up front around what this looks like. So it is a very different way of thinking about things. But if we keep treating people and employees as though they're somehow these children who need to be you know, hyper vigilantly managed and controlled, it's going to be a huge limit to moving forward. And this is why so many people say their leaders are poor, right? Because again, we're having so many high performers who get into this fixer role and they're just trying to control other people in the process. So moving forward into the future, we're going to need people who can do more of what needs to be done now, but even more so. Oh gosh, I couldn't agree more. Just thinking about the workplace of the future with the appropriate leadership that really thinks about how you bring the best out of your people, getting a whole group of people really understanding their purpose, uh, why they do what they do, coming together to achieve common goals. I mean, all of this stuff, that's where the magic happens. And so it really does lead us to a brighter future. So I hope everybody out there follows this great advice around connection, communication, and collaboration. You can get more information about these tips and tools from Alan's book, Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Great Leaders. So I think if we're going to build a great future, I want everyone to go out there and check out that book and apply it in your workplaces based on the very actionable content he puts out there. So Alan, this has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for joining me. 
Rebecca, thank you. It's really been my pleasure. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Alain lays out a tremendously simple yet powerful framework that sets the stage for effective leadership. By leveraging critical skills related to connection, communication, and collaboration, leaders can maintain their focus on a critical theme, treating people like people. At the end of the day, this will be required of leaders who shape the future, and most importantly, those that inspire others to do the same. It's important to remember, it's not that leaders are made nor is it that leaders fit a specific mold. That type of thinking opens a Pandora's box of bias and bureaucracy. Instead, leaders behave in ways that help people around them thrive. To create an environment where these behaviors flourish, it must be one centered on connection and psychological safety for all employees, including those leaders. This is an environment that focuses less on the numbers and more on what makes people thrive. That isn't saying that numbers aren't important, but with the focus on people, the numbers become more of a natural byproduct because people will feel valued and understand that they are an important piece of the puzzle in contributing to a goal bigger than themselves. If people are driven by a meaningful purpose, their work will elevate higher than if they were driving to meet a metric every single time. So, I'd like to leave you today with a couple questions. What kind of leader are you? And what type of leader do you aspire to be? Now, I'm not asking only those that have a leadership title. The leadership behaviors discussed here can be demonstrated by anyone at any time. The question really comes down to the foundations you set for the people around you to thrive and the people you might just inspire along the way. We can't shape a better future by ourselves. We must work together to do that. So... Go on. Go help shape the future. To learn more about Alan Hunkins and his amazing work, go to alanhunkins.com. That's A-L-A-I-N-H-U-N-K-I-N-S.com. And make sure to pick up his book, Cracking the Leadership Code, Three Secrets to Building Great Leaders. I'm Rebecca Scott, and this has been Humans Now and Then, hosted and produced by Rebecca Scott. Episode notes can be found at humansnowandthen.com. Thank you for listening.